You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Doctor's Lounge. This is Dr. Mike Karuchak, your host for this week. Thanks very much for being with us. It's good to be with you today. Uh, we have some very interesting things to talk about uh, here on America's Web Radio. Um, we, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to go on a sidetrack here or a tangent before we even get started because a very crazy thing uh, happened in the office today. Just as I was getting ready to go home, my administrator hands me. Uh, a fan letter. We got a fan letter here on the doctor's lounge. Um, and the, where it came from is even interesting. This came from one Dr. Robert S. Berry in my wife, Amy, her hometown of Greenville, Tennessee. And uh, he sent a lovely letter. I'm just going to listen, uh, read it for you. Dear Dr. Mike, I've been listening to you and Dr. Hal for about six months, and I've enjoyed your shows. I think I remember you're saying that your wife grew up in Greenville, Tennessee. Indeed, you did. Good memory. Uh, the town where I have lived and practiced since 1996, two years after my wife and I got married there, and thought that you and she would like to know what is happening to our health system here by including with this letter the speech that I gave, Dr. Barry gave, Last month at the Capitol Theater on Main Street concerning the new monopoly health system called Ballot Health. Tell your wife that I'm glad you are passionate about freedom and health care and that I hope you continue to advocate for it on your radio show as the Democrats continue to push for Medicare for All. I have been an insurance-free primary doc since 2001, and I'm currently converting from fee-for-service to DPC after attending the Orlando conference this past November. Keep on defending private medical care. Sincerely, Robert S. Berry uh, from the practice called Direct MD in Greenville, Tennessee, primary care practice. Well, Robert, Dr. Berry, thank you so much for the letter. Uh, and I'm happy to give you a well-earned, well-deserved shout-out. Um, after the show tonight, I'm going to email you and, and let you know uh, that we uh, that we gave you a shout-out here. And, um, and uh, quite frankly, we hope to get you on the show. Let this be your public invitation to come and share your story, share your speech that you gave uh, a few days ago. And uh, I, I'm sure that the audience here would love to hear what's going on. Um, it is delightful that, that direct primary care has reached uh, Greenville, and uh, actually sounds like uh, Dr. Berry is ahead of his time. He's been doing cash-only, insurance-free primary care for almost 20 years and uh, just converted to DPZ as a result of interacting with us. So it's, uh, I, it, it's a, I'm sure it's going to be a great story when hopefully we, um, we get him on the show. Um, but it's also a bummer to hear that uh, the forces of evil have also made it uh, out to, you know, such a genuine, wonderful down-home place as Greenville, Tennessee, truly one of the most beautiful places on earth. Uh, and uh, so, so we hope, uh, Robert, to get you uh, on this show hopefully two weeks from today. Uh, and uh, if you had from, heard from me already, you'll, you'll hear soon. So today's topic for most of the hour uh, sort of came together almost accidentally. started about 10 days ago when I learned that 
I would be going to Washington, D.C. and visiting the White House once again. Uh, Dr. Gross, our fearless, peerless leader, whom you've heard on this show many times and will soon hear from again, I am sure, um, got an invitation and he was unable to attend, so he asked me to go in his stead, and I was happy to do that, of course. But as is the usual case with these White House invitations, the notice is only 48 hours. So, you know, on short notice, you have to cancel 25 patients from clinic, and uh, I've seen almost all of them in the days since, and they've all been very gracious, and I will be glad to thank them publicly for bearing with me and, and allowing themselves to be rescheduled on a short notice. Um, but uh, in addition to the White House meeting, whenever you get one meeting and you know you're going, you always try to schedule other meetings, and I had had a dialogue going with two uh, physicians uh, in the Office of the National Coordinator of Health Information Technology, one Dr. Thomas Mason and one Dr. Andy uh, uh, Gettner. Uh, and so I got to schedule a meeting with them, and uh, that turned out to be an extremely gratifying, extremely educational uh, experience. And uh, and so I'm going to spend you know as much time of, from the hour as I need uh, talking about both meetings and uh, and trying to to make it uh, something that's uh, that's worthwhile to listen to. So uh, the the health information technology meeting uh, again very interesting thing. And actually I learned some things that I probably should have known um, several months ago. Turns out that the uh, Office of the National Coordinator has been uh, busy, uh, and, and I was unaware of this. This had sort of slipped through the radar late last year uh, that um, the ONC, Office of the National Coordinator, ONC, had uh, drafted a, uh, a draft strategy on reducing regulatory and administrative burden relating uh, to uh, health information technology and electronic health records. And I had heard that this was, was out there. Uh, I just hadn't really – it just hadn't smacked me between the eyes well enough to review it back in November and comment on it during the comment period, which closed on January 28th. Luckily, um, I was able to meet with them last week and uh, and make my comments face-to-face, uh, which was very gratifying. But the part here that is interesting, and, and, and you all know, those of you who – uh, are kind enough to make a habit of listening to me is is that I'm I'm usually very critical of this stuff, right? I mean, much of what we do on the doctors' lounge, for better or for worse, is spend a lot of time critiquing what the government does in healthcare, and that's appropriate because the vast majority of what the government does in healthcare is not exactly helpful. And uh, this, however, is a very notable exception. Uh, I'm not saying that I agree with everything in this 75-page document, but there are some key parts in this document, and I'm just going to scroll through this thing and sort of, uh, you know, I spent some time doing pen and ink modifications in the margin of this thing, so I'm just going to kind of go through here and kind of free associate uh, what's in here and sort of tell you what I like and tell you what I don't like. But but the bottom line is, after reading this document, there is there is a significant possible. You have to allow for the significant possibility that these folks get it, in spite of the fact that they're government bureaucrats. Now, by definition, uh, I can tell you that you know, talking to Dr. Tom and Dr. Andy here, uh, that they have not forgotten that they're physicians first. Um, they deserve the compliment, and uh, I was it, was it was very interesting. Dr. Uh, Thomas Mason came from Cook County Hospital. Uh, he is an internist, uh, and he um, 
you know, was instrumental in getting Cook County on to phase two of meaningful use. And you could like it or you could not like it, but it's something everybody had to do. And, and, and he was a big part of their success. Um, and Dr. Andy uh, is an anesthesiologist. Uh, he came from an ICU setting. I, I believe in Dartmouth, if memory serves. And Andy, if you're ever hearing this, I'm sorry if I get the, the details wrong, but uh, I think it's Dartmouth, if I remember correctly. But he was in the ICU and was asked to uh, to uh, take on a project on the floors that had to do with adoption of electronic medical records. Uh, and uh, to his credit, the first thing he did was cancel the project because he took a look at it and said, this isn't going to work. Uh, and so, you know, to me, that's that's gutsy. That means he was not uh, just bowing down to admin because I'm sure that's not the answer they deserved. You know, you might think, you know, or, or, or at least guess, uh, educated guess that the admin just wanted him to figure out a way to get the doctors to, to you know, submit and, and, and bow down to this. Um, if that's the case, he went totally the opposite way against the grain, which I applaud. Um, got the, that project stopped and got a, a homegrown EMR system started. Again, this is the early 90s, like way before Meaningful Use, just a long time ago. Um, and, uh, and so, so gutsy twice, right? Not just to, to walk away from an established project, but to start a, a from scratch a EMR. So the bottom line is both of these doctors bring a, a good, solid background of both medicine and information technology to ONC. So that's great. So we, we hit it off. It was a wonderful conversation. And, uh, and so, you know, this is kind of the stuff that, that we talked about. Uh, it turns out that this this draft strategy, uh, the strategy has four parts. Uh, part one is called clinical documentation, and there was a lot of good stuff in here, right? This was where we come across some of the concepts that we have talked about many, many times over the five years that we have been on the air with Doctors Lounge. Um, stuff like, you know, E&M guidelines E&M documentation guidelines right the ones the, the the bullets that you have to hit in order to bill your office visit at a particular level need to be changed uh because they those are paper based uh documentation guidelines and once we entered the information age with electronic medical records um those guidelines create yeah, very long notes because it turns out, as as you and I both know, whether you're a physician listening or not, that uh, chart notes are no longer chart notes. Chart notes are uh, uh, billing receipts, right? They have to have so much useless information uh, in that uh, that you know it makes the note useless, or at least it makes it very difficult to use. These guys were totally on board with that, and there was the, I did not have to do any work whatsoever to convince them of the need to uh, revise E&M guidelines. Now, we did talk in detail about some of the particulars about E&M guidelines, and, and we've talked about this before on the show, but uh, remember perhaps from a few months ago, we talked about their proposal to uh, to change this whole thing at the level of payment as opposed to the level of documentation. And I won't get into the details because it gets too long and drawn out, but it's, uh, you know, there are level one through five in terms of how complex your office visit is. Their proposal was to take the middle three levels, two, three, and four, and collapse them into the same payment level. And I said, this is not really something we should do. I said, you should look at, um, look at it from a component level and make the notes easier to create uh, as opposed to collapsing the the documents, and they were very very um, uh, receptive to that. The other thing that I was really happy to see here is the emphasis 
on the EMR side of creating workflow processes that are that, that we need to get our work done, right? This is the one thing, and if you've heard me rant on and on about this, you know that we've talked about the fact that you know we don't care about interoperability at the 50,000-foot level. We don't care about big data or artificial intelligence or any of these sort of empty selling points that the health IT community likes to push. We need products that help us get the work done, and that priority is in the clinical documentation strategies and recommendations. Step two had to do, or part two of the strategies, part two of four was health IT usability and user experience. Very much aligned with the clinical documentation. A lot of overflow, but again, an emphasis on making it so that if you want to order a chest x-ray, you click one button and the darn thing is ordered. We don't have to go back and fill out a paper form. You don't have to worry about whether or not your interface runs. We need this plug-and-play connectivity between the physician's office and the facility that's providing the x-ray, the CAT scan, the lab, the, the physical therapy, any of those things. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not... You probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Karuchak, your host this week. Dr. Mike Karuchak, that's me, your host. Thanks very much for being with us today uh, in the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Uh, apologize. Uh, apologies to the last segment. I got uh, a little carried away and had to cut the audio off to make the 13-minute cutoff for a segment length. We were talking about uh, my meeting with Dr. Thomas Mason and Dr. Andy Gettinger at the Office of National Coordinator of Health Information Technology, and I was happy to tell you this was a really good meeting and also happy to report that some of the work that the office is doing, especially with a, uh, a draft strategic document on how to reduce uh, 
you know, electronic medical record work burden for physicians uh, seems to have uh, some hope. It seems to be a document that actually, believe it or not, somewhere inside the government bureaucracy, um, some folks seem to actually get it and understand what we need. Now, how much of this actually gets implemented, I don't know. But at least uh, for now, there is some cause for a little bit of hope, maybe. Um, uh, these guys understand and acknowledge that uh, meaningful use as a concept and as it was implemented could have been better and was a little bit of an overstep in terms of what they required docs to do. Uh, again, they soft pedal it. It's their job. I understand. They also acknowledge that we need to change the E&M documentation guidelines. Um, I don't agree with how they want to change it, and they've already sort of canceled or delayed the proposal to um, simplify E&M at the payment level as opposed to at the documentation level. And we had a really helpful, meaningful – hate that word, meaningful – meaningful conversation about how to, uh, how to do this by eliminating components of the note, make the notes themselves shorter and more succinct as opposed to uh, trying to do a Band-Aid uh, at the payment level. I was also pleased to see they do support the concept of helping our clinical workflow, helping us order tests, schedule studies, uh, schedule therapy, and do all these things from inside the EMR so that far less uh, human involvement uh, is required. Uh, in this document, you will see no mention of big data or artificial intelligence or any of the health information technology communities, uh, sort of empty selling points. Uh, but it wasn't perfect. Uh, there are some issues. Uh, I think that they don't quite understand that this is a matter of patient safety as well as a matter of reducing the clinician burden, reducing the doctor burden. I mean, not that the burden's not important. Obviously, it's important. But I try to impress upon them this is a safety issue. And we discussed, as we have on this broadcast on multiple occasions, uh, the death of America's first Ebola patient because of a data workflow failure within the electronic medical records. And, and they readily acknowledged that issue. We discussed it at length, and it was good. But tried to emphasize this is as the patient safety is obviously more important than than our burden. But the two are linked. Uh, the more we're burdened by documentation and by quality reporting requirements, the less attention we can actually pay to the patients, and that does become a quality and a safety issue. Ironically, all these things were were required to do in the name of quality and safety actually hurt both of those things rather than help them. And I think we had a good meaning of the minds on that. Uh, remember, and this was something that they tried to impress upon me and that I promised I would pass along, is that the the executive branch of government, right, of which these are all a part, uh, has obligations related to the legislation, right? This is these folks are operating on the MACRA bill and the 21st Century Cures Act, both of which employ minimum requirements on what they are required to require of us. And they can't go below what the law says they must do as a, as a floor. Uh, the other problem that we have here is that this, this strategic document has no teeth. And there's a bunch of, there's a lot of rhetoric in there about what health IT vendors should do or could do or ought to do. And my response to them was, well, unless you have some teeth in this and you can link this to incentives or link this to certification, 
they're all going to nod their heads and give this lip service, uh, but nothing of any import is going to happen. So that was the conclusion of an hour and 15-minute meeting with Doctors Mason and Gettinger. Again, really nice folks. I think they get it. They are, you know, uh, as bureaucrats, their hands are tied in terms of what they can do. But, but um, you know, if, if uh, we get a little more time and a little more um, uh, wiggle room to work with these folks, I, I think there's there is promise. The final document, remember we're working with a draft document here, the final document is due out in late November and uh, I think they will accept uh, my attempts to continue to to be involved with it at some level. So keep your fingers crossed. Maybe something good will happen in the early months of uh, 2020, uh, although we will be consumed with an election year by then. The second meeting that I went up to Washington for was the White House meeting. And this was another one of these listening meetings. It is the second meeting of this type I've been to, the third meeting I've been to the White House overall. Uh, the difference here was a much bigger audience than the first go-around when Dr. Hall and I went up there to talk about certificate of need and a few other related topics. This was uh, how do you save Medicare? <laughs> very, very broad uh, topic to be sure. And uh, all I can say is... Um, I went up there and said as much as I could say. I, I did get into uh, a little bit of spirited debate with a couple of the folks representing major uh, pharmacy chains. Uh, and uh, at, at the end, we had a little bit of a talk about uh, politics. Uh, but, um, you know, you do what you can do. Uh, there were plenty of heavy, heavy hitters there from all of the major uh, non-clinical parts of uh, of medicine. There was American Hospital Association, Americans Health Insurance Plans, um, major pharmaceutical chains, uh, or I'm sorry, major pharmacy chains and major pharmaceutical manufacturers. Uh, and it, it's hard to summarize it here without getting into the weeds too much and putting you all to sleep. So uh, I think what we'll do for the rest of the segment is uh, is pull one of the interviews from uh, the uh, DPC 3.0 uh, meeting uh, last November. Uh, this is uh, Dr. Ellen McKnight. Here we go. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge on our road trip to Orlando, Florida from Atlanta. Uh, we have with us in the Doctor's Lounge now Dr. Ellen McKnight. Uh, what makes uh, Ellen unique is that she is doing a direct care model um, as a, a medical subspecialist, and that's always been one of the questions that faces the growth of DPC as it gets beyond primary care into specialties is how do specialties handle it. So uh, Ellen's experience will be very interesting to hear about. Uh, and uh, so Ellen, just tell us where you're coming from and what your what your odyssey has been. Thank you for having me. Um, I actually am not doing exactly a direct care model as a specialist. I have opted out of Medicare. And as a rheumatologist, that actually is kind of a big deal. It's uh, There's a big hurdle there that... Um, that needs to be overcome, but I have actually found out that it's really not that difficult, and I'd like to share that experience with my fellow physicians. Please do. Let's hear what you have. So what I did, I'm at the end of my third year of opt-out. I developed uh, something called fair cash prices. Uh, what I did was I um, limited the Medicare referrals into my practice uh, for a few years before I ultimately decided to opt out. Uh, when I opted out, I started in January of 2016, uh, and now I'm towards the end of my third year. So what I do, because I treat chronic illness, is that I incentivize compliance in that your 
visits get a little cheaper each time that you come in over the year. So I'm incentivizing you to come back in because for me, as a rheumatologist who manages chronic illness, it's easier for me if I see you on a regular basis. So it's it's a little more money the first few months or the first couple of years, and then the, the rate drops after that? So what happens is um, I do it based on 12-month intervals. And so, for instance, uh, at this present time, your first visit in a year would be $95. Now, this is for established patients. I do have a new patient fee of 235 although things are working out so well that I'm contemplating bringing that fee down. I would like a low bar to get new patients in. But so what I do is um, it's 95. If you come back in a second time, it's 90. If you come back in a third time, 85. And the fourth time would be 80. The floor is 80. But if I have somebody who's sick and needs some attention and I'm having to see them frequently, because they're coming in so frequently, that's actually easier for me. So I think it's worked out quite well. I also want a low bar for patients who are flaring up. I don't want them out there thinking, I don't have 160 or $170 to pay this doctor for a visit. 80, 85, much more doable. So rheumatologists, correct me if I'm wrong, but you guys do a lot of treatment with biologics, right, with Humira and that kind of stuff. And so are they... Do they get those expensive medicines the way most people do, or have you solved that problem with a different approach, or where is that? Well, what I've done, of course, is opt out of Medicare, and there are ways that you can opt out of Medicare which still allow you to order tests, labs, medications. Now, those patients cannot be infused in my office, but I will send them to the hospital for that, and they are able to get those medications. The interesting thing, though, I have many of my Medicare patients who have stayed with me who are coming back in to the office with these gigantic bills. Now, these are folks who had infused with me when I was doing it. It does show, though, that the prices are much, much higher at the hospitals. So I do support my rheumatology colleagues who are infusing in their offices. It's very important. And are you doing this as a solo practice, or do you have partners or associates? Or No, I'm solo. Okay. And, and, and you know, I, I guess it kind of parallels the level of work. I don't know. Correct me if I'm wrong, but, it, it, you know, somebody comes in with rheumatoid arthritis, let's say, which I assume is something that you're seeing bread and butter. Yes. And it takes a lot of work to sort of get them under control. But once they're under control, the visits can become less frequent in the amount of... Of, of sweat that goes into keeping them on maintenance is less than the amount of sweat it takes to get them under control if they're uncontrolled. Yeah, that, there's no question about that. But what I will say about rheumatologic illness is that it really is important for ongoing care. So you really want to incentivize those folks to come in. For instance, people who are on methotrexate, pretty much the standard is every three months labs and an office visit. So I actually do a prepaid uh, $320. I'll see you four visits in a year. Now, because I'm incentivizing compliance, if for whatever reason you only make three, now I'll reschedule you if, you if there's an issue, but if you only make three, then you don't get a refund because in theory the standard of care and the best care is for you to have been seen four times. So I try to incentivize people to do what they really should do. Gotcha. Now, in your talk yesterday, you had you've got some comments about the feudal model of of healthcare and pricing and whatnot. Why don't you give us a thumbnail on that? Well, I'm trying to help my fellow colleagues understand um, that they don't need administrators and bureaucrats to have success in the practice of medicine. 
And right now, because we have been practicing under what I'll call a form of medical feudalism, where the physicians would be the present-day vassals and the administrators and the bureaucrats would be the present-day lords, many doctors feel they cannot practice medicine without the protection of those who are currently overlording us. My hope is that we won't have people continually overlording us once we take our skill and knowledge directly to the patient. Outstanding. Anything else you want to share with us that's on your mind? Well, We're about out of time there. She's about done, too. So thank you very much. You're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Welcome to the Doctor's Lounge. This is Dr. Mike Karuchak, your host on America's Web Radio, sponsored by the Docs for Patient Care Foundation. Thanks so much again for joining us one more time. We've got more and more news uh, to talk about every day. Uh, this is kind of an odd time in sort of the healthcare uh, news cycle as, as the debate on Medicare for all kind of rattles on and takes a little bit of a pause here before the, the campaigns get uh, hot and heavy in earnest. Uh, the good news is that uh, with uh, Docs for Patient Care Foundation, we've got stuff going on or at least are connected to uh, things going on at the state level and some good things are happening. So with me is uh, it's our fearless, peerless leader, champion and president, Dr. Lee Gross, president of the Docs for Patient Care Foundation to help uh, get us up to speed on what's been happening lately. Lee, thanks once again for joining. Hey, Mike. Great talking to you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Sure, of course, of course. That's uh, you know we kind of do like uh, like they do on Fox News. We have our core guests that come on on a regular basis, and <laughs> and and you're the one. So you know, anytime there's something that uh, that needs a bit of cerebral input, uh, you're the one I always turn to. So going uh, to the Washington desk. Right. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, this is like uh, you know just having having the panel uh, or or having the brain trust. So uh, so Lee, there's been some stuff, of course, going on both in Georgia and Florida, and the, the Florida stuff is, is sort of built on the stuff that you worked so hard uh, and were directly involved with last year, um, but some things have happened this year, and there are some interesting lessons to learn, especially for other states considering this, so why don't you walk us through it? 
Well, before I do that, I want you, you can go ahead and share your news about Georgia. I think that's a pretty exciting accomplishment there. Okay, well, sure. Wanna, no, we, we can certainly do Georgia first. Yeah, uh, the, the news in Georgia is, is good, and at least in my world was a little unexpected because I thought I was connected to this and didn't learn about it until the day the governor signed it. But, yes, uh, uh, SB Senate Bill 18 um, passed, uh, uh, of, you know, giving direct primary care in Georgia a direct explicit green light, and it, uh, it it's the bill you always hope to get, Lee. It, it, it was pure. It's two pages. Uh, and all it says, in effect, is that direct primary care is legal. It's not insurance. It is not subject to the requirements of an insurance company uh, and lays out a very bare-bones set of requirements that uh, defines direct primary care and defines what the relationship should look like. But, uh, uh, yes, I mean, if I were inclined to torture everyone, I could read you the bill in, in, in three minutes. <laughs> please don't. <laughs> but, but please don't. <laughs> or we'll, we'll lose everybody before you get to the good stuff. Exactly. That's not the first time that bill was, was introduced. I mean, that bill had been introduced multiple times, yet something happened different this year um, that pushed that over the finish line. Do you know what um, I think, well, one thing it, from an ethereal level, you can talk about what's happening at the federal level and what happened in the choice and competition report, which may or may not have an effect. I think the change in leadership in the House of Representatives, and I know that's going to have an effect on certificate of need probably next year, but there was a change in House leadership, um, and I forget the specifics off the top of my head, but we basically got uh, – we replaced someone who was uh, very much uh, you know on the side of the insurance industry with somebody who wasn't, and I think that probably helped a great deal and i think going directly to the the legislators on the 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 insurance committee and sort of getting them to understand what direct primary care was uh you know they really did think it was insurance they thought it was a plan and so it was explained to them and somebody actually showed them what direct primary care was and how powerful it was that they that they stopped pushing back against it and, and allow it to go through and once it did go through it it sailed pretty much this year didn't it uh, yeah, the votes were not close. I mean, the votes were overwhelmingly positive. It was not a close, dramatic vote. I just kind of looked it all up about 20 minutes ago, and yeah, there were yeah. it was overwhelming yes votes in in both chambers, and the governor, of course, signed it without any difficulty. And here we are. So, um, you know, that's a bill that took me about seven years to pass here in Florida, and I just started that process with the state of Alaska. So, uh, a couple weeks ago, I testified via telephone with a the uh, House of Representatives in the state of Alaska on their DPC bill. Uh, that bill happened to contain quotas in it that mandated a certain percentage of the practice uh, accept Medicare and Medicaid patients. Uh, and working with the, the, the lawmakers there, working with the bill sponsors, we were able to get that language stricken from the bill that, that requires uh, government insurance participation to be direct primary care there. But that bill's probably going to die in committee this year. Um, and then we'll just kind of keep taking another bites at the apple in Alaska. But hopefully we keep on adding more states to this. More than half the states in the country now have this protection. Yeah, have, it, it's an interesting – go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. You know, it, and it's an interesting process with um, legislation at the state level, and it was something I was completely unaware of until a few years ago that since the state legislatures are in such short sessions that you know you get a piece of it done and then the session's over and you go after it the next year, the next year, and the year after that, which is you know different than what happens in Washington for sure. Exactly. So we had a big, big session here in Florida for healthcare freedom. This was a this was a huge win for us. Uh, we we tackled some major major milestones here. So I'd love to share that. Yes, please do. So, as you know, we passed the our direct primary care legislation last year, 
and between last year and this year, I think the legislature really, really liked what they saw happening on the direct primary care landscape. Uh, the, the, I think the care that they were seeing and the access that they were seeing through direct primary care startups I, I really impressed the legislature so much that they said, to, well, if this is a good model for primary care, why don't we just expand it to specialists as well and let everyone participate in this? And so this was not something that we initiated. This was something that organically developed uh, based upon the success of the model. And so a lawmaker up in Jacksonville introduced a bill that expanded direct primary care to all specialists. Not really important to get into the, the logistics and how that bill was, was written, but it, it basically, if you are licensed to practice medicine in the state of Florida, you have the ability to enter into a fixed fee arrangement with a patient and not be considered a health insurance plan. So consider an endocrinologist or a diabetes specialist uh, entering into a fixed fee arrangement with a diabetic patient. You know, one of the importance of that is that it now frees up the doctors to innovate directly with their patients. So if you want to say as, a, you know, as an endocrinologist, you, know, you can email me unlimited times, you can call me, you can text me, you can come into the office. Uh, there's no limitation on the contacts. We're just going to make sure you're cared for properly. That is now perfectly allowable in the state of Florida. Probably allowable in most places anyway, but now it is absolutely specifically protected in Florida. And with the you know, way technology is evolving and the you know, different ways you can communicate with patients, it's important to be able to have these unlimited touches to, to impact patient care. And, and let's walk through exactly how that works to make sure everybody understands that. In, in a traditional you know, CPT-coded fee-for-service arrangement, uh, the physician is working for free unless they physically see you in the office, which means that everything has to go through a physical office visit. Uh, when you have direct primary care, and correct me if I don't have this right, I mean, you're getting the monthly fee. Everybody's incentives are aligned. You want to, the care to be the best quality, the most efficient, and, and for, for everybody involved, which opens all modalities like you were talking about. Exactly, exactly. The, the incentives are all aligned to make sure that the patients care, the right patient in the right setting at the right time for the right price. Um, all those things are, are done. Uh, now, the interesting thing is whenever you're opening up the, the state regulations and the state law books for editing, uh, it opens up opportunities and threats for anybody that wants to mess with that legislation. And that's precisely what happened here in Florida. So if you're thinking about doing this and, and so, well, we, you know, we, we got our DPC legislation, now let's take another bite at the apple. It's a, it was a very risky proposition to do this. Um, and we fought off some very, very hostile amendments that would have been very detrimental to direct primary care in Florida had they been successful. Uh, and so one example would be specifically that they would have banned direct primary care doctors from working with small businesses. You know, that was our epiphany when we launched Epiphany Health Direct Primary Care in 2010. Well, it's, it's the story the of how it started. You were approached by a business, if memory serves. Yeah. The, so the business wanted to contract with us to take care of their employees. That would have been banned um, under this amendment that was filed that we had killed. Uh, Medicaid patients that are seeking affordable options for, for care uh, would have been banned from seeking out care through direct primary care practices if this legislation passed. So um, it, the amendment was were, were very important for us to jump on these, and we got them quickly and, and mobilized a force to to uh, knock those out pretty effectively. And and this was this was merely a matter of, of education, uh, as opposed to having some sort of dark force somewhere that you couldn't really see or understand, sort of pushing another agenda. Yes, no, something else. 
Um, in terms of the motivation behind the the actual amendment itself, or how we how we were able to dismantle it. <laughs> Okay, well, I, I don't know. In, in a sense, I guess it doesn't matter. I, I guess the lesson to be learned here is that uh, that any time that you know, it, it's all part of this sausage making process that that is legislation, um, which is that it's got to go through a lot of steps. There are a lot of people that can get their eyes and their hands on this, and especially like you were saying, you you take a bill that's locked down or a law that's locked down and and gives you certain things, and uh, you know everything's on the table. You could lose ground as easily as you gain ground. Yep. So as the, my first step into into law, the lawmaking process, the lobbyist told me, he said, as long as the legislature's in, in uh, session, nobody's safe. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. Good way of putting it. And that is a, a lesson that I've taken with me, and this was a, a prime example. Um, so we have a, a couple minutes left, so I just wanted to also share that we did manage to repeal most of the certificate of need uh, requirements in the state of Florida, so that that antiquated law from the 1970s that was a, uh, a competitor veto law, crony capitalism that uh, sets up monopolies and, and uh, restricts competition and limits choice and drives up costs. Um, every administration since the Reagan administration has, has pushed to overturn these certificate of need requirements. Um, but this was laid out in the president's choice and competition report that was released last year. Uh, as a blueprint for free market reforms in the states, and the, Flo- the state of Florida and Governor DeSantis and the, and the Speaker of the House used this as a blueprint to guide their legislative agenda for this last session, and they were able to push finally since the 1980s the repeal of certificate of need requirements. You no longer have to ask your competitors for permission to compete with them. Uh, you know, as it turns out, you know, the original plan was to limit the supply of services so that they could decrease the spending on it. But it turns out when you limit the supply of services, you limit the supply of services. Um, and they got exactly what the laws were intended to do, was people were being blocked out of access and care. And, uh, and so this has a hard. very real sort of implication in your backyard, if I understand correctly. Absolutely. I, pa- I practice medicine in the largest city in the state of Florida that has no hospital. We have 70,000 70, residents. And we do not have a hospital. We applied for it four times and were rejected by the state, um, telling us that, you know, they, for one reason or another, that we didn't meet their qualifications to have a hospital. Meanwhile, the city of Sarasota, which is, you know, 45 minutes north of us, has uh, two hospitals and we're just approved for two more. And they have a smaller population. Well, the, the, I expect that people are already on the move to fix that. Uh, we're, uh, we're running out of time on segment one. You're listening to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. 
More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Karuchak, your host this week on America's Web Radio. Thank you very much for joining us once again. So hopefully uh, you enjoyed the uh, last segment where we talked to uh, our fearless, peerless leader, Dr. Lee Gross, one more time about his latest uh, accomplishments, and they are many, and they accumulate more and more by the week. You heard him talk about uh, legislative victories in Florida. Uh, he's uh, now involved in Alaska's uh, process to uh, support direct primary care. Uh, so, uh, you know, Lots and lots of neat stuff and lessons to be learned. I thought it was very interesting uh, that uh, once you uh, introduce a a bill that uh, opens the door to changing legislative language that you can both gain ground as you intend to do, but you could lose ground as well uh, as uh, the forces of evil will take that opportunity to to make things worse instead of better. And it was interesting that there was almost – a disaster with that bill because there was language introduced that was going to uh, make it uh, illegal for direct primary care practices to contract with businesses, which basically kicks two legs out from under the three-legged stool. So very interesting uh, lessons indeed to be sure. So for this segment, uh, I think we're going to just talk about some some stuff I've found in my travels, reading and researching and doing stuff, uh, just kind of a, a, an update for the news. And then we'll put some, a, a couple of more speakers on from uh, uh, no, uh, November's uh, DPC meeting to uh, round out the hour. But first thing we'll talk about is uh, I'm going to try to start off on a positive note. I probably won't stay there for long, but I'm going to try to start off on a positive note. And, and you know that uh, I have criticized uh, heavily recently uh, this whole concept of artificial intelligence in health information technology, and I stand behind those criticisms. But I found a couple of things to talk about in the artificial intelligence uh, realm, or at least something that passes as artificial intelligence. Right? We talked about the fact that AI really has no exact definition that is universally accepted. But at least one can say that this is stuff that uh, requires heavy-duty computing power that might actually do some good in the world of medicine. The first one comes from a very unlikely source, Motor Trend Magazine, believe it or not. I do spend some time reading stuff that's not medicine or healthcare policy. Uh, I also happen to be a car guy. We've never really talked about that, which is probably just as well. Um, but from the current issue of Motor Trend Magazine, there was an article about something called Metacars. Uh, uh, what are Metacars? Well, the idea is that uh, 
they have acceleration sensors, you know, vehicle accident sensors, right? Cars already have that, right? If you have a vehicle with OnStar or something equivalent, uh, you know, the accelerometers in that vehicle can sense an accident. They can sense if the car's rolled over, if you've hit something or something like that and see if you're still awake and if you're not conscious, automatically call 911 on your behalf if you're unable to do so. That technology's already out there and you can buy it, of course. Uh, but this whole concept of a meta car takes that one step further, a big step further, which is to use a series of accelerometers in the car to really get a accurate picture of exactly how much force was involved in the accident and where those forces were applied, whether or not the airbags deployed, uh, how many passengers were in the car at the time, and you know, sort of a black box thing, right, records the, the speed and everything else in the seconds leading up to the accident. And merge that with a database that I presume is currently under development that can plot the relationship between accident types, you know, the acceleration profile of an accident, and the injuries that the occupants of the vehicle will sustain. And the idea is you build a model that allows you to predict based on exactly how the accident occurred that can then predict, uh, hopefully, quite reliably what injuries occurred and not only call 911 but but actually specify exactly what happened and what they need so instead of uh, you know an ambulance responding in a generic fashion and discovering that the accident's severe and you need a medevac helicopter call the helicopter first call them both together uh, as opposed to that two step process and and that's very important because i remember being taught in trauma uh, something was called the golden hour which is the first hour following an accident that you know how and when and the timing of of life saving intervention can make a big difference in the outcome. So here's something, here's something where the power of, of information technology, you know, merging databases with sensors really could be put to good use to do something that we can't do by any method today. So I thought that was a very interesting, uh, you know, way to apply, you know, far more useful than a lot of the stuff that I criticize, I think. Um, the other one actually had to do with IBM's Watson. So this is the second example now, and this was something I came across, I want to say on LinkedIn, although I, I couldn't find it again when I was looking for it to prep for the show, but I remember it pretty well. It was one of these, uh, you know, invites uh, from an IT company, happened to be IBM, and, and on behalf of the Watson product, of course. Uh, but the uh, the invitation was for physicians, and it was that if you are engaged in research, let Watson maintain. Watson, listen to me. <laughs> let Watson um, uh, maintain your uh, your patient database and uh, and and take care of uh, you know mining your data and 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 you know stewarding your data and uh, and let Watson have a look at it, and maybe there'll be things found in your data that you didn't know. But even as just sort of a custodial function, uh, and then apply the AI to the data that it collects and, and just let it have at it as opposed to just looking at your hypothesis. Maybe you find something. And I thought that was something that was, you know, a, a, a and what I liked about it was that the scope is relatively narrow, right? This isn't curing cancer or, or you know, some sort of moonshot, you know, ridiculous sort of concept. This was, uh, you know, something that was very, can be very finite, can be very limited and defined in scope and really has a chance to be something that's, that's positive, so that's it for the – speaking of positive, that's it for the positive comments I have. The rest of this is all going to be uh, sort of things I found. You know, I, I get up in the morning and read stuff that comes across my iPad and whatnot and sort of take notes. And, and if I find something really neat, I put it in an application called Notability, which if you do any note-taking or any uh, you know organizing of stuff you read, I, I recommend highly. But 
the the common theme, and we've got we'll see as many as the segment allows us to do. What do we got about uh, seven minutes, uh, six minutes left? We're about halfway through. Um, is to uh, talk about um, th- these. There's a series of articles, and, and the, the common theme among all these articles is what happens when third-party payers upset the free market or upset the natural order of the universe. So uh, we're going to start with uh, sort of the resident equivalent of what we've talked about before. right? We've talked about before, and if you listen to me, you're familiar with the idea that electronic medical records, information technology wastes more time than it saves, and that for every hour we spend with patients, we have to spend two hours with the EMR. Uh, makes doctors very inefficient, and that's very true. So what happens if you look at residents, doctors in training, and uh, what is the effect um, in, on, on residency training of all of this health information technology. So this was a very interesting um, study that was um, uh, that was uh, actually done at uh, UPenn. Uh, so you know, leading institution, University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. Uh, they looked at eighty interns, uh, and the the gender breakdown and everything was all you know the way it should have been. Uh, you know, in terms of uh, you know who they recruited for the study, and they they observed them with time, motion, observation techniques, which are which are pretty well vetted and pretty well proven, and discovered that uh, out of a twenty four hour day. And I'm trying to read this and find it. They spent a whopping three hours out of every 24-hour day face-to-face with patients. Three out of 24. So, you know, barely, what is that going to be, 15% or something, or, you know, more than 10, less than 20 uh, uh, percent of the time is spent actually face-to-face with patients, touching them, talking to them, examining them, treating them, doing stuff, um, the, the, the stuff that doctors do, uh, what do you suppose they spent the rest of their time doing? Yeah, wait for it. Basically in front of the computer, of course. Um, not all of it. Some of it was in education, and of course that's fine. Um, but uh, you know what they call indirect uh, patient care, which is probably a term that is too kind, uh, was uh, almost 16 hours, 15.9 hours. So, you know, do the math. You know, that's what, two-thirds, three-quarters of their time that they're in front of a computer and 10 to 15 percent of their time uh, in front of patients. So it's just like with practicing physicians, except that it's uh, way worse. Uh, and that's you know, and, and I can I can attest to that myself. I see, uh, you know, my my hospital that I go to for most of my stuff has now been annexed into the teaching hospital network in our town of Atlanta. And uh, yeah, you can go in the, uh, the the doctor's lounge or the surgeon's lounge and and find basically a bunch of uh, young doctors at a row of computers, and that's what they're doing. They, they, you know, I, the wards are empty and the computer rooms are full, and and that's that's kind of how how it is. And and you know, it's a sad thing. Um, next. And again, on the subject of hospitals and inpatient care, uh, uh, whatnot, is uh, an article that I found on the subject of hospitalists, written by a hospitalist, um, one uh, David M. Mitchell, uh, Dr. Mitchell, <clears throat> and, uh, and, and he talks about the six uh, things that are wrong with hospital medicine, sort of the six, six steps to um, why hospital, the, the hospitalist specialty 
had so much promise in terms of making hospital care better, but uh, it has been reduced uh, to nothing but, uh, according to this author, uh, sort of a, a a gaming mechanism, a mechanism to survive, you know, in the third party payer system. And again, I don't I don't criticize the hospitalists for this, and I don't criticize the hospitals for what's here. Uh, but you know, it, again, it's 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 all about financial survival, and it's sad that it's that way, but it is. So so what are the steps? Well, the, step one, or what he calls the first pillar, is um, that you you hire a bunch of young doctors, young hospitalists that are young and hungry and have big student loans they got to pay off, and all that kind of stuff, and you put them on a fixed salary, uh, maybe with a little productivity bonus, maybe not, but basically their expenses are fixed, and uh, and then you work them as hard as you can. And, and you can get away with that for a while. Uh, so, you know, you, you make their patient loads uh, as high as you can. That's step one. Step two uh, is what the, uh, the hospitalists will now do in response to the work overload is to offload as much as they can onto specialist consults as they possibly can. Uh, and, and that's step two. And that means that, you know, their, their assessment and plan reads, you know, and I'm reading from the article, acute kidney injury per nephrology, chest pain per cardiology, cellulitis per infectious disease. So basically every line item in their assessment and plan is merely to defer to the specialist consultant uh, in terms of what's going on. So that's step two. Step one, overwork your young hires. Step two, um, you know, the young hires then respond by offloading as much of the work as possible to specialists. Step three, uh, and I'm flipping through here, is to start the, the the process of gaming the system, which is now to manipulate your medical documentation to make your case mix index, right? That's the measure of how sick your patients are and the measure of how much you get paid. Make the case mix index as high as possible. Um, so, you know, an elevated, a slightly elevated troponin becomes an MI, you know, a cough and a temperature of 99 becomes sepsis. Um, I'm reading examples. I'm reading examples from the article. Uh, and so the idea is to make patients look on paper as sick as possible because that's how you get paid. And again, a third-party payer has no idea. They've never seen the patient, so they can't measure value. So you have all these weird arbitrary uh, systems in place. Um, pillar four is uh, step two of gaming the system, and uh, we'll get to this at the next segment. You're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.